Hey there, pen pals. Welcome to another episode of Vertical Play Pen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in this episode, I'm going to be doing another round of answering listener questions. So a while back, I asked for listeners to submit questions. And so I'm going to take a handful of them. I'll see how many we can get through in the allotted time that I'm giving myself. I haven't done any prep. I haven't really looked at them. I want to be able to like just go with my gut reaction as, as if you were asking me this question face-to-face. If we met at a conference, you asked me this question, what would I respond Stick around to the end. I am going to read out a couple of podcast reviews that I've grabbed from Apple Podcasts. If you want to have your review read out, then please submit a review. It really does help us out. The more reviews, the more ratings we do get on the platform, the more likely we will be uh, heard by someone who's randomly scouring through podcasts. They will find us. And that would be awesome for them and us. Look, see, you're helping out two people. The other thing I'll mention before I get onto those questions is that if you're on Instagram and you didn't realize that we were on there, please check us out and follow us. We are at Vertical Playpen, and I post three or four times a week, and I am giving value in those posts. At least that's my aim. So there are a lot of valuable information that is additional to the podcast episodes, sometimes in coordination with those posts, but also just randomly. Like I talk about ballet technique in there and and things that are related to facilitation. So check us out at Vertical Playpen. So this first question I'm going to look at comes from Meg Bolger. So Meg asks, how to experientially create norms without sitting down and just writing a list? Good question, because this is something that I have gone back and forth on for quite a while around norms, creating group norms. And structuring them and, you know, this could be a whole topic in itself as I'm just sort of like thinking about it right now. I'm not a fan of doing norms early in a program. So if you have a multi-day program, I don't see the benefit necessarily of creating norms on the first day. If it's around safety and these are safety norms where it comes to, you know, climbing, that completely makes sense that you would want to introduce those. When you get up to a low course and there's cables on the ground, reminding people not to run and jump around the cables and climb on stuff without supervision, these are all norms that are helpful. But group norms in terms of like positive behavior traits, negative behavior, those kind of things, having those discussions, I don't understand why you would do that on the first day because you don't know the group. So... If I'm working on a multi-day program, I may introduce norms in a second, third, fourth day if I see the need. If I notice there are certain behaviors that are making individuals uncomfortable, then I may then decide to bring that up and have a conversation about it. How I do that experientially is through role modeling. So I'm always a participant in activities that I play as long as I'm able to. If it's paired activities and there's like an odd number of people, I have a little tear, a little sadness because I do like to play. But I will be role modeling behaviors throughout. 
So asking questions, creating an opportunity for people to speak. If you want to try to encourage support, then give questions around how well we support this. You frame it, you front load it at the start. This activity we're about to do is going to be really focused and dialed in on how we support each other. Can anyone give an example of what it feels like to be supported? Can anyone give an example of how you give support to others? Go around the room, blah, 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 go around the group, have these conversations. Okay, let's get into that activity now. The activity we're going to do is blah, blah, blah. At the end of that activity, you then get to reflect on it and say, so remember at the start, I mentioned this was about support. Would anyone like to talk about an experience they had where they felt supported in that last activity? What you've done in doing this, in the front load and the reflection of this, is you've created the norm that we should be supportive. And the tone and the language and the way that we do that is also reflected in the way that we lead that activity. So I think that's possible just just in the sequence that you do, where you create norms. For the most part, I always start a program focusing on connection. So I'll do a lot of connection-based activities. And that's norm-focused also in itself. The more connected we are, the more likely we're able to empathize with each other, the more likely we'll be able to support each other. So there's some benefit into creating experiences where I'm connecting individuals. Ultimately, if I see behaviors that I know that are negatively impacting others, I like to bring them up and address them in the moment as well and just do a uh, hands up if you've ever felt this way scenario. So I might not highlight the experience exactly, but I might say I've witnessed some behaviors that for me, they don't make me feel great. And I just want to address that as a group. This is how it makes me feel. Does that resonate with anyone else in this group? Hands up if you also feel this way. Have there been other experiences in your life where you felt this way? Would anyone be willing to share? Those kind of things then create the awareness that certain behaviors are not also appropriate in the group. Now, if you see this consistently, that's when you decide to halt everything and maybe have a discussion and we create a list as a group and do something like a full value contract or an us, not us list or something around that. But doing it as a given, all right, I'm going to do norms. I just don't know if that, for me, that doesn't feel appropriate. And so I ask you to challenge yourself with that framework. If you're new into the field, this is something that you've been taught somewhere and you know that norms and creating this kind of stuff is a norm, which I think is funny. Creating norms is a norm. Yeah, challenge that stuff a little bit. Try doing an activity without doing any norms and see what happens. I almost guarantee it won't be as... uh, problematic as maybe you think it is just by the way that you role model and the behaviors that you have it sort of reminds me of um low activities the nitro swing the nitro crossing if you go over to that element where it's just a hanging rope and there's a foot loop maybe and that's you can tell it's a swinging activity if you go over there and don't let people swing in it and they just like kind of you go in there and immediately constrain it with rules watch the faces of the group and notice how dull and boring that activity becomes everyone's instinct when you go over to a rope swing is probably to swing on it. Oh, I want to swing on that. Some people don't want to, but for the majority, it might be, oh, I want to swing on that. So why would we put the boundaries on it before we've even had the opportunity to demonstrate it? I think in terms of tech skills, there's also why I think there's a lot of sometimes hesitancy for allowing younger participants to belay or teaching them to belay because we put this assumption that they're not going to be responsible. Well, let them prove it first, right? Empower them to be responsible. And if you see it otherwise, then you know, okay, I need to constrain it a little bit more, but don't constrain it before you even figured out if they're going to be good or not. 
So when it comes to norms, the same deal. Why would I create rules around your behavior without even seeing how the group behaves? So I hope that answered the question. I role model, do activities, frame it, all those things. Sometimes do a list. I haven't always found them to be the most exciting. And those who know you creating norm lists, normally the energy. I think of a program of having a flow of energy. That's normally the trough. That's definitely not often the peak. People are going, yes, finally, we get to we get to do norms. We've been playing too many games. Let's get on to the discussion about how our behavior needs to improve. Yeah, that's my two cents on norms. Great question. Thank you, Meg. Okay, next question. So this comes from Floyd Hinman. And he asks, what are some trends in our industry you hope will not continue? So I think the first thing that jumped into my head was the pandemic has created some situations where we had to adapt our processes and protocols in the way that we operated stuff that actually I'm probably going to keep. So one of those was I've always felt a little bit icky, not comfortable when I've seen people do tactile inspections of participants' harnesses or help them out putting their harnesses on, like tightening the straps for them and that kind of stuff. Mainly because of the area that the harness sits on the body and the closeness of the staff member with the participant's harness I've always found that just to be a little bit uncomfortable. For the most part, I used to teach that you're very verbal about what you're going to do. So you tell people, hey, is it okay if I tighten your leg strap? And so you tell me rather than just like shocking them from behind, grabbing the harness, right? So, but actually, I think that I'm starting to teach more people to be really good about verbal description and allow people to put their own harnesses on. And if you notice that things are on wrong, you are verbally correcting that and letting them go through the process and, and solving that. With really younger audiences, I still think that you can do that. I don't think that you need to uh, help them out. If I equate it to like tying shoes, if I've got a fifth grade group and someone says, hey, can you feel, can you help me tie my shoes? I'm probably just going to want to teach them how to tie their shoes rather than just tying their shoes. And I know that like programmatically time-wise, it's easier, quicker sometimes to grab the harness and have and you make do it for them. But where's the learning outcome? And for me, it's always like I want people to be learning something. And so if they can be learning how to put their own harness on, I don't see that being a, a negative. I think about that with like not teaching people how to tie knots as well. If I can better describe the information and demo the information, like I'm going to demonstrate how to tie it, I'm going to verbally describe all the parts, get really good at my language around it, my description, talk about bites and loops and working ends and standing ends and be really descriptive, then they're going to have a better sense of empowerment and achievement when they do it rather than grabbing the rope from them and saying, look, this is how you tie it. Well, of course, you know how to tie it. You've tied it so many times. So showing them closer by you doing it for them makes no difference, I don't think, than you standing further away and demonstrating it. I like people just to trial and error through it. And if they're struggling with the lengths of bites and lengths of tail and all that kind of stuff, let people experience that. 
and you can verbally describe it and give them tips and advice, blah, blah, blah. But that way they are empowered to make that choice. And I think the same thing with harnesses. Just a, like a tip for me when I'm demoing putting on harnesses, I don't do the follow along with me method. I prefer to have the harness, have them not holding harnesses, watch me, pay attention to me. I'll demonstrate putting it on myself. I'll give some little tips dependent on the harness. And then I'll let them grab harnesses and help and coach their peers also. If you're done first, coach. But once again, see if you can do this hands-free. It's it's an interesting skill to watch people really struggle with like their words and try to describe stuff without actually touching. But I think it pays off in the end. And I think that what you'll do in, if you're working with the same participants over and over again, the next time you give them a harness to put on, they'll put them on quicker. So that's that's something I hope will disappear. No touching people's harnesses anymore. Let them put them on themselves. Something else that pops into my head when I think about a trend that I I hope that does disappear for the industry, I have many conversations with people in this field who use the phrase, I didn't get in this for the money. And I think that holds us back as an industry, that statement. I do agree that this industry gives us a lot from outside of the money perspective, like personal self-satisfaction, the fact that any form of teaching gives you that, right? You're imparting information to people. You're, you are, and I mean this sincerely, we are changing lives in this industry. We have a great impact. We do incredible, incredible work. And I'm proud to be in this industry. But if we truly believe all of that stuff, right, shouldn't we be putting a higher value on it in some way? Why should it be this really awesome thing and also be very low in its economic ladder or standing. I could be speaking to other industries at the same time and having these same conversations, but I think that there's a little bit of um, responsibility that we as an industry have around this kind of thing. And I don't think people saying that we didn't get in this for the money helps us. I think it holds us back from actually being able to advocate for more. And especially if you, you've been in the field for a long time, like I'm 30, I'm turning 34, I've been in the field for about 15 years. I could be considered still uh, new. I, I would consider myself more in the middling area of the industry because of that issue around, around salary and around money in this field. I've worked with so many incredible facilitators who are no longer in this field, who are doing something way different. And so actually being in this field for 15 years is a long time because it doesn't create the opportunity for people to stay at it for a long time. I am very fortunate in the organization I work for that I do feel like I can stay in this field and and have that kind of progression. But it's very few and far between. And I also know that when I have gone and presented at conferences and spoken to people, that some of the people I'm presenting to are earning a greater salary than me in a different field. So I do feel distance also between the salary that I earn and the salary that other um, professionals earn in different industries. So do I have all the answers? Absolutely not. I have tons of opinion and I continue to say it. And this is like a platform to be able to say it in. So know that this opinion is coming from me, Phil Brown, not necessarily High Five, the organization that I'm working for. I do think that we have a responsibility to do something different. Now, what are the solutions around that? Well, the solutions, ultimately, we're not going to be getting paid more unless we start charging more for our service. 
And also, if that's the case, will that mean that certain people can't work with us? Possibly, but I think that therefore we also need to advocate for maybe a state level, government level, federal level for grants to be available for people to be able to take advantage of the great work that we offer. Social emotional learning, connection based education, team development, leadership development, I think is very popular at the moment in people's minds because of the pandemic and all the lack of social interaction maybe we've had and mental health challenges uh, presented themselves. We we can fill that gap with the work that we do. We have the responsibility to be able to do that. So we should be able to advocate for the grants that could be out there. We should advocate for charging more. We should advocate for paying more. I recently saw on Summer Camp Pros, which is a Facebook group about summer camp professionals, a big discussion around this very topic about summer camp professionals, counselors, actually protesting the low salaries. And I've had many conversations with, with camp directors about this in the past as they've struggled to hire people in that if they are not charged, if they're not paying their staff much, then the alternatives are there for students to be able to take internships, work in it in the retail industries. There are options there for them in the summer where they would earn a lot more. And so the value is then you try to pay off the experience like, oh, experience of these things is trumping the salary. And yeah, for that can work for some people. And it, and it honestly, it worked for me. It drew me in. I thought like, oh, I need the experience. But we do live in a society where the cost of living is going up. And I'm not seeing a lot of like the cost for our industry in changing in a, in, a, in a consequential way to keep up. So I don't want to, as a trainer, I don't want to keep training people and then seeing those people leave the industry because we cannot keep them. Because we're failing to be able to give them a salary that is worthwhile for a family and et cetera, et cetera. You know, that, that hurts me as a professional when I get to see incredible people, have good conversations with people at conferences and ask me questions about how to stay in the field. And I have to give them these kind of icky answers that the salaries aren't great, but the experiences are awesome. I hope that that is something that in this industry is a trend that I've experienced. And I hope that trend uh, doesn't continue and that we bring in really quality people to do awesome work and give them the options to be able to do that for the rest of their life. Okay, so let's uh, do one more question. Let's see. All right, this is a question from Lisa Hunt, who is a trainer at High Five. Which is better, pudding or jello? I'm, God, I actually find this quite challenging because I do like both of them. There's a, a difference in the texture. There's a gelatinous kind of uh, experience of the jello. There is kind of refreshing. I like do like how Jello kind of like uh, kind of you know melts in the mouth. It's far less caloric, and I am a skinny person, so I actually think for for me to increase my calorie levels, and that's something I am like conscious of at the moment, is I'm going to go go pudding, because I think I'm getting more calorie from the pudding. I do like the texture of the pudding. I'm going to go as well, I would choose a chocolate pudding. Maybe uh, a spray of whipped cream really enhances that experience. And I'm also going to be honest, this is how I eat pudding. 
it's it's cold, right? So you maybe it's in the fridge. Uh, I don't like a warm pudding. I like a chilled pudding, and I like to mix it up, almost so it becomes maybe more of a liquid than a solid. I'm also a person who, when they eat ice cream, I like to whisk that up into a more liquid substance. So there you go. We've answered some questions. Thank you once again for those who submitted. Feel free to continue to submit questions. See, they can be range. You're asking, you're just asking for a fill opinion on a topic that could be work related or it could be or random miscellaneous related. And I will give you an answer, which is just the first thing that comes into my head. Might look back on this and wish I'd have chosen Jello. The last thing I said I was going to do is I'm going to read out a couple of reviews. These are honestly, they keep me going. The fact that people listen and respond and I got a a really nice email the other day and that meant the world. So I'm a human being at the other end of this, just talking to you. And if you want to talk back to me, you can do so. I always respond uh, to messages on vertical playpens instagram at at vertical playpen so you can always reach out so this review is from joe ellen k it's five star review this exceptional podcast is full of great ideas and information i work by myself running a ropes course it can get pretty lonely when you don't have anyone to bounce ideas off of or generate new ways to do old activities when i found this podcast my whole world opened up again I am so excited to learn and relearn activities, best practices, and really enjoy the conversations as they happen. Thanks, High Five, for making my work fun again. Thumbs up emoji. Thank you so much, Joe. Ellen, certainly appreciate it. And I also highly relate to your statement of feeling alone on a ropes course. Before I worked for High Five, I was the manager of a a challenge course at a camp that yet did year-round programming. And I had a couple of people to bounce ideas off, but for the most part, I did feel very isolated in my excitement around it, my passion around that, and also ideas. So constantly on the lookout for new ones. So thank you for reaching out. Okay, this one is from Smile Cause You Can. Phenomenal resource for all experiential educators. Five stars. Highly recommended for anybody looking to sharpen their facilitation skills. Thank you for that review also. So if you'd like your reviews read out on the podcast, or you would like a question answered on the podcast, you know where to submit them. There is the email, which is podcast at highfiveadventure.org. That's H-I-G-H, the number five adventure.org. Or you can go on to Instagram and direct message me, and the Instagram is at Vertical Playpen. Awesome. Hope you have a great week and you're doing some fun stuff out there. Continue the work. Stay safe. Stay connected. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playpen. And then what about, thanks for listening to High Five's podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting us a good guy.